As we go to the Lord in prayer before we open the word together, uh, I want to ask you to, to join me in praying specifically for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. There are just a number of stress points that the church feels today. And from the news that broke yesterday about the earthquake in Haiti, uh, it struck a region where we actually have friends. We, we don't know any details if their town or their church family was hit hard, but we have great concern. And anyone who knows just a little bit of, of, about Haiti knows they have no margin uh, to absorb a blow like this. And with the threat of a tropical storm uh, predicted to make landfall tomorrow, it just adds to their sorrow. We're also mindful that uh, as... Afghanistan is in the news that there is direct impact on brothers and sisters in Christ there. Some of you may follow Mindy Bells, who is one of the authors for World Magazine. She's done extensive work in the Middle East, and some of her uh, reports and tweets in recent days have been very troubling. We have no doubt whatsoever that the Taliban will, well, has already begun to seek out Christians and will continue to do that. So we have brothers and sisters there who suffer and then other places like Myanmar, where being, being a, a follower of Jesus Christ uh, often costs everything. And I, I will, if I can just share my heart, it's part of the reason I grow a little frustrated even in our own nation where people talk about, oh, we're being persecuted for our faith. Not really. We feel some pressure and resistance there. Persecution is when wicked and evil people storm through the doors and kill some of us and torture others of us, burn our building down, burn our Bibles, and put us on the run. Now, that's not the only form of persecution, um, but, but we need to lose a little bit of that martyrs complex in the West that, that we've developed in recent years. Uh, we need to stand for truth. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's difficult. But we, we don't really know persecution the way some of our brothers and sisters do around the world today. So I, I don't say that to chastise anyone, just to give a little perspective and say that there are some really uh, significant points of sorrow and, and suffering as we've been looking at in Romans 8 uh, that we need to remember in prayer. Now, the great news to to frame it in the gospel truth is that all of it is being used by God to conform his people to the image of his son. And he will bring justice, he will bring vengeance. That belongs to him. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But before he reaches that point, we should pray that God would turn the hearts of even some of these most wicked and evil and violent people to Christ, much the way he did with a man named Saul who would later become the, maybe even the greatest apostle in the New Testament era, a man we know and love as Paul. So I want to pray, take just a few minutes to pray over these things today and ask you to join me uh, in, in crying out to our God and Father, our Abba, on behalf of our brothers and sisters around the world. So our God and Father, Abba, as you have taught us to pray to you, with the saints of old, we cry out, How long, O Lord? Will you forget your people forever? How long will you hide your face from us? How long must we take counsel in our souls and have sorrows in our hearts all the day? How long shall your enemies 
exalt themselves over you. We praise you on this day that your word gives us life and perspective. We know that these attempts, even by the most powerful uh, leaders on earth and, and groups of people to overthrow our Savior and his gospel work will come to nothing. Your word gives us perspective on this. It is laughable to you that there are those who truly believe they could unseat Jesus Christ as king from his eternal throne. We praise you for the word that is alive and powerful, honed with wisdom and love in order that it might penetrate to the deepest recesses of our souls and spirits, that it would discern every thought and intent of our hearts. Father, as we open your word here together this morning, we are praying that you will do that heart work in us, but we are crying out on behalf of our brothers and sisters all throughout this world in places like Afghanistan and Myanmar, in places like Haiti and Syria and Lebanon, where the suffering is very real. And some of them will give their lives, even on this day, for the testimony of Christ. And the strain upon our souls seems unbearable, Lord. And the speedy advance of forces like the Taliban has very real consequences for your church. And so we ask this morning that for those who follow Jesus and are on his mission to spread the good news, that there would be protection and provision, that you would empower them to stand boldly and speak on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may some of those who commit great atrocities against them have their hearts convicted of sin and turned out of that darkness and into the light of Christ's grace. And while there is opposition and oppression, while there is suffering of unspeakable kinds in our world today, Lord God, let the work of Christ triumph. And so we add our prayers to the prayers of those dear brothers and sisters who have shed their blood for the testimony of Christ. Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge their blood on those who dwell on earth? We cry to you for comfort, for relief, for peace, for healing, for Haiti. The dear ones who survive under ordinary circumstances on a razor's edge, no margin uh, to, to absorb the kind of devastation that yesterday's earthquake has brought. Oh, Lord God, hear their cries. Use this as a moment when more people will be brought into the kingdom of our Christ. And we sorrow the immediate loss of life and we fear for what will unfold in the coming weeks and months uh, because of the pressure it places upon their day-to-day -day survival. Oh God, have mercy on this dear country and these who have been created in your image to know you and love you and serve you. And we cry for the peace of our nation we pray that you would bring it not through political means or new laws that would go into legislation, but we pray that you would bring it through an awakening that would humble our proud hearts, that would move us to repent of our deep and rebellious sin, that would sober us to honest confession before you and repentance, an awakening that would bring millions to Christ, an awakening that would fulfill your promise to Jesus that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. So make your promises come true in our day, Lord. Save us from the calamity. Save us from our sin. Save us, Lord, that we may know you alone are God. Now as we open the word, speak to us by your spirit, even as we just 
prayed in song, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear your voice, hearts that respond in obedience and, and eager service, souls that are transformed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to take a little excursion from Romans for two weeks. Uh, and as you can see from the screen, the first message that I'd like to bring you, and these are uh, just one-off messages, we might say. The first has to do with parenting. And the second, next week, Lord willing, uh, will have to do with Christian marriage. And as you can see from the title on the screen, I, I want to cast this little brief word concerning parenting uh, it, with this concept of a holy mission. I know for many parents, it's just survival. Like, you don't think of yourself as making forward progress and advancing a great cause. I mean, it's like moment by moment clinging uh, in survival. And some of you grandparents feel that way too. You thought that parenting was hard enough, and now you got to watch your kids, who you still love and care for, kind of make their way through this challenge of parenting. And uh, sometimes it's hard to keep your mouth closed, and other times you wish you had kept your mouth closed. And it, it's a challenge. But the Lord gives us as a church, not, not just for Christian parents, but he actually gives us as a church words that give us perspective and hope and really bring the whole task of parenting into a new dimension, if you will. Certainly a different perspective than many of what our uh, world would, would tell us. Now, this is also a bit of a gateway message into an equip series that will come later in the fall. We're, we're in the home stretch of that equip study of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Matt's going to take the baton during the equip hour and run with goodness, uh, which is part of the fruit of the Spirit. So we have just a, a few more to go after this, and then we're actually going to take about four weeks as a church family to work through uh, some really helpful teaching from Paul Tripp, getting to the heart of parenting. It won't be the full series, if some of you are familiar with it, uh, but it will include four videos that are gonna be very helpful. And then after that, we're actually gonna sample a little bit uh, of a, a, a four-part series on marriage. Uh, we'll get to that in time. So, a gateway message today for some additional teaching and discussion that is to come, a gateway message next week for uh, something that will come later in the fall. Parenting is tough. Uh, it's blessed work. And every stage has its own challenges and sweet spots. But what makes Christian parenting different from any other parenting in the world, whether it be of a religious nature or just a you know, philosophical or even psychological approach? What makes Christian parenting different? Uh, is it that our character training is superior or maybe our children grow up to be uh, model citizens that are better? Uh, is, is it independence that we're after or just contributing to the greater good of society? Well, those are worthy desires as we train our children, but that's not actually what distinguishes Christian parenting from the rest of the world because I think you, you would find both religious and non-religious people saying, I want my children to have strong character and to be uh, you know, exemplary citizens and contribute to something worthwhile. I mean, I think we could check all of those boxes regardless of whether we know Jesus or not. And we're not simply trying to create a better version of that than our world. 
No, the mission of Christian parenting is ultimately to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That may seem like a no-brainer, but I don't think it is for many of us because we get lost in the weeds of parenting sometimes. But God is calling us, and, and this is true not only for Christian parents, this is true for the body of Christ. So in one sense, some of you say, I'm not a parent or I'm beyond that stage, like, can I check out? No, you must not, because our church is on this mission. So yes, it's a specific word to parents for their encouragement, but it really is for all of us. We need to understand these things and be on the same page so that whether it be serving a, a, in your rotation in the nursery or the children's church or actual parenting or grandparenting, when, you, when your life intersects with the younger ones in our assembly, you have some of these same truths and principles in mind. The mission of Christian parenting is to make disciples of Jesus to so love and teach and discipline and point our children to him that they gladly yield their lives to him completely. We want to disciple true worshipers of our Savior. We want to disciple true servants of the King. And we want them, as we're going to come in a few minutes to see from Hebrews 12, we want our children to be, children to be sharers in God's holiness so that they ultimately have that eternal relationship with him. Now, very quickly, a few foundational truths. And this is foundational truth found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I'm just gonna survey a couple of quick passages. Uh, you can jot these down, meditate on them a little later. I'm gonna make very brief comments because I'm trying to get beyond these foundational truths to, to something else that I think merits a little more time and thought this morning. First of all, teach them to honor authority. Teach them to honor authority. That's a verb. It means engagement and activity in it. And the primary text we come to is the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The concept of honor has to do with giving weight to an individual in this context. And the, the spirit of God's truth is that we actually learn to give greater weight to others, all others, uh, because we ultimately will honor God first, and then we honor others above ourselves. And the home is the first place where that important foundational truth needs to be learned. Some of you grew up in a home where that was instilled in you. Others of you didn't. N nobody had taught your parents, and they didn't know to teach you, but now God in his kindness is setting this before you and, and we see the effects of this in our society when people do not honor others. It looks like chaos and mayhem and riots and all kinds of things. Teaching our children to give weight, uh, to make honorable, to glorify even would be an appropriate term here. It's interesting that the fifth commandment really stands kind of as a bridge between the first four which have to do with worshiping and serving God exclusively, the God of the Bible, not a God of our imagination, not a God of, uh, of, of some tradition that's been passed down to us, but the God of the Bible who reveals himself to be who he is, to do the things that he says he does. And then the, the last half of the commandments deal with loving others. It's love that, that drives us to protect property and not steal it. It's love that says, I will be a truth speaker, not a liar or a deceiver. It's love that says, I'm not even gonna covet my neighbor's wife or his boat or his house or his 
employees, to put it in a little more modern terms. Love compels you to do that, but right in the middle uh, of those uh, two points of focus, loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, loving others as you already love yourself, is this first commandment that has to do with earthly relationships, and it's about honoring. Deuteronomy 5.16 tells us, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. God's expectation really for all children everywhere is to honor and obey, which we'll get to in just a moment. But notice he gives that commandment with a view of blessing children. Number two, teach them to reverence authority. You say, is there a difference Uh, Yeah, there does seem to be a nuance, and I think that's part of the reason God didn't just stick with the one word honor, uh, to revere or reverence. As Leviticus 19.3 says, every one of you shall revere his father and his mother, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. And so that reverence has to do with respect, that, that our children actually learn to put parents, grandparents, other authority figures in a position that is exalted. We don't worship our parents. Uh, Worship is reserved for God, but we do revere them. We do revere authority. Leviticus 19.32 gives a very practical point of application. Listen to this. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. Did any of your parents teach you, as mine did, that when an older person walks into the room, you get out of your seat and stand there until either they find a seat or or give you the cue, it's okay to sit back down. And to this day, it drives me nuts. I mean, I've had to work with my own kids and still even to this day sometimes remind one of them, get up out of your chair. It's just a way that we show honor and reverence to another person. We're saying, you know, you have more importance at this moment in this place than, than I do. God is serious about it. Say, wow, so am I sinning if I don't get out of my seat? I'll leave that to you and the Lord in your conscience alone to work out, but that, that's the Bible verse. It's also part of the reason that I know as, as I was growing up, my, my parents were very big on when they, when they brought their friends into the home, I was expected to refer to their friends as Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. Or sometimes we would, we would give a little variation of that uh, this is actually more in recent years, something we've done with our kids. My parents didn't even afford me this opportunity. Uh, but we recognize there are some family relationships that are much closer than just friendships, and so we, we would have our kids refer to a couple of people as uncle so-and-so, or aunt, or sometimes even miss so-and-so by the first name. But, you know, our kids were not on a first-name basis with our friends, And I know for some of you, you're like, wow, I've never thought of that before. I'm just putting that out there. I don't want to bind your conscience in a way that the scripture isn't, you know, emphatic on, but I'm offering that as something because your kids need to learn at an early age, there's a generation above them that deserves reverence. And my kids are not my peers in those early years. And your kids are not your peers. And your kids are not my peers. And that kind of reverence and respect does a lot to actually strengthen the the foundations of our whole society. That's part of the frustration we have right now with a lot of what's taking place. There really is no respect. It's one thing to have a a difference of opinion, to disagree even strongly, to debate fiercely. It's a whole other thing to scorn and and to uh, dishonor another person who has a different opinion. 
And a lot of that's tied back to the way uh, a generation has been brought up. Reverence authority. Oh, there's so much here. I know it's the start of a school year, but um, I, I think we need to be very mindful of the opportunity that we have to instill in our children the right kind of reverence for teachers, some of whom are, are out to lunch. We've all had weird teachers and, and hard teachers and unreasonable teachers, but at the end of the day, we can trust God to use all of those imperfect people to conform us to the image of his son. And that term reverence is actually translated into the English in Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God or to reverence the Lord your God. And so ultimately, it's not even about teaching our children to reverence you know, parents and grandparents, the generations that are ahead of them. It's giving them the tools whereby one day they're gonna connect some dots and say, you know, in the same way that I learned to reverence you, I need to reverence God. I need to live in the fear of the Lord as the scripture commands me. So you're actually laying some gospel foundation pieces here, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Ted and Margie Tripp, that's Paul Tripp's brother. We, we have used some of his materials before. That's the part of the series that we'll use with parenting later. It's Paul Tripp. So some of you say, wait, there's a Ted Tripp? Yep, they're brothers. And Ted and his wife Margie Tripp have written a really helpful book titled Instructing a Child's Heart. And in that book, they, they say, we think of the heart as the emotional organ and the mind as the cognitive organ, but the Bible does not support that idea. The decisions and choices we make in life originate with what we love and desire. The Bible refers to the source as the heart. And so that's why the, the appeal is made. And going back to Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, we're told not only to fear the Lord our God, but to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And the Lord's not like separating those two parts of us, one from the other. He's talking about coming to the place where all that you are is surrendered to God. And so even as we teach our children some of these foundational principles, it's with a view that one day they will surrender all that they are to the God who created them. The script, he goes on to, they go on to write, there are over 750 references to the heart in God's word. The scriptures tell us that the heart conceals, discerns, instructs, mediates, muses, perceives, plans, plots, ponders, thinks, and weighs. Weighs, W-E-I-G-H-S. Though we know scientifically that it is the brain that processes and organizes data, it is the heart that directs even those activities. And that kind of leads us into this third foundational principle, obedience from the heart. Teach them to obey from the heart. And this is where we really do begin to distinguish ourselves from many other philosophies of parenting because many are content to just simply find some kind of behavior training or behavior modification. And Christian parent, uh, although we, we want our children to, to learn uh, what the rules and laws of the land and the community are and operate by that, we all recognize that, that a child can obey to the letter of the law and yet not have a heart behind it and underneath it that really honors the family, let alone honors God. And so that's why Paul says to us in Ephesians 6, a New Testament passage, now children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And we're gonna touch on that little phrase, in the Lord, in a little more detail, in just a little bit. 
Do you know that, you say, why, why is the picture of, of that person cupping his or her hand? I can't decide. It kind of looks like a man's hand, but there's something about the hair that makes me think it's a lady. So I, I'm not exactly sure. Are you, voting, are you voting for a man, Kristen? A woman? Oh, okay. Um, well, we can take a straw poll later and find out. I chose that picture because if, if you do a word study on obedience, you will find that the terms that God uses uh, point us to listening, understanding what he says with a view of obeying. And, and that's one of the first critical lessons that parents uh, work so hard to teach their children. Listen to me. Listen to me. Um, I, it's funny. Four, we have four kids. Most of you know that. They're all very different. One of our children, I mean, especially when he was younger, and it's not Seth, um, <laughs> although we did this with Seth. I, I think we probably did it with all four, but our oldest, Luke, was, I mean, he to this day is just this bundle of energy, but you know, even as, a, as, a, as an unconverted, undiscipled little guy, I mean, his attention span was everywhere, and, and I would often have to get down on a knee, right in his little and, level, and take his hand, or take his head in my hands and put his forehead right to mine and I would say, listen to me. Listen, look, look at me. And even then with his forehead pressed to mine, he'd be like, you know, <laughs> looking out the side. Oh. And I, I'm, I watch some of you work with your kids and week after week you're telling the same stuff here. I mean, I hear it and watch it. Don't grow weary in well-doing. In due season you will reap if you don't faint now. You would think it was odd if, if my 26-year-old son walked through the door and I got forward to forward with him today and took his face in my hands and said, son, listen to me. No, I'm thankfully actually mature to the point where giving dad, giving mom, giving authority, giving God his full attention is now something he's able to do. At the heart of obedience it is a, a heart and soul that listens to God. And so even as we were singing just a little bit ago, when we say as a congregation, speak, O Lord, as we come to you, to receive the holy food of your word. I love the lines in that. I think it's the second stanza. Speak, Lord, fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Man, you'd think the Gettys just like stared at the scriptures we were looking at a moment ago to, to compose those lines. Knowing them, they probably did. And so we as adults should be living our lives with, with open ears and open hearts saying, speak, Lord, so that we may know and obey, and, and we have to give that to our children. Now, let's go to the heart of the mission. First of all, Christ is central. Um, there, there's so much I would love to spend time in, in Ephesians 6. We're actually gonna just... Uh, touch on a couple of other things there. Um, are your Bibles open to Ephesians 6? Did you turn there yet? You can do that for a moment. We will come to Hebrews 12 in just a moment. Um, but after telling us, um, or, or saying to children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, then Paul quotes the fifth commandment and, and says it's the first commandment with a promise, a specific promise, um, long life, that it may go well with you. Then he says in verse four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but 
bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And certainly, just to touch on this, there are parenting strategies that are not only counter to the gospel, but can do harm to the gospel mission. And, and provoking your children to anger uh, means that you're parenting in a way that angers them. Colossians 3, Paul writes, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Uh, you can exasperate them. You can discourage them to the place where they, they give up. And certainly they don't want to follow the faith that you are trying to instill them. Uh, and I, I'll just insert this. Parenting that ultimately makes your child's life about your comfort, your convenience, your fulfillment, your dreams, your hopes, your ambitions will accomplish those very things that God said, don't do that. Because you don't want a parent-centered child any more than you actually want to live in a child-centered home. Christians want to have a Christ-centered home. So that means moms and dads need to be living with Christ at the center of their worlds, their universe, which means that he's the one who sets agendas and dreams and ambitions and all of that. And then we, we are inviting our children, and sometimes through uh, strong effort and exertion, to join us in living this Christ-centered life. So that's, in part, what is behind this first uh, point, that Christ is central. Now, in Ephesians 6, when, when Paul uses the term bring them up, he's actually using a word that in other places would convey the idea of, of nourishing and nurturing, of strengthening, uh, bringing up to maturity. And then there are two components of that that he sets forward here. First, in the discipline of, of the Lord, and then the instruction of the Lord. Now, let's talk for just a moment about the discipline that he's speaking of. You need to broaden it beyond you know, a spanking, as some of us would tend to like. That's where my mind goes to as a former child um, who, who survived those early years. Um, no, he's talking about training and education. Training that actually is cultivating a heart and mind. You can't separate this from the fifth commandment in Exodus or even that uh, clarifying explanation in, in Deuteronomy 5 uh, and beyond. God is ultimately seeking to transform the heart of uh, a child and cultivate in them a heart and mind that's completely submitted to him. And then he uses the term, the instruction of the Lord. And that has to do with everything from formal teaching and admonishing. We're doing some of that here in partnership with you as parents this morning. Children's ministry going on right now. And believe me, it's not just snack time, craft time, and play time. I mean, the Bibles are open back there. Even for those who can't read yet, they're hearing the Word of God, and we're trying to teach it in such a way that, that it is obvious to the, our littlest ones that God is central. Christ is central. So God's call for every Christian parent is to nurture the soul of the child with this comprehensive training and cultivation of his or her heart and soul in the truth, or we could say the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not even about passing down family traditions. They have their place, they're important, but that's not ultimately what Christian parenting is about. You know, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says, folly or foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Sorry, but that's how we're all born. It, 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 those... 
those of us who've been around long enough to hear this and think it through, you know, and we understand, young parents, I don't say this to discourage you, but you know, we, we, we've all been a little surprised that suddenly we realized, I have a strong-willed child. Every child born on planet Earth has a strong will. They'll show it differently, they'll show it strategically. Some of them will mask it for a while, but it's there in every one of them. And the strong will is actually tied to the folly or foolishness of believing, first of all, that they're the center of the universe. And we kind of have to reinforce that out of the womb because they're so dependent that when they cry, we know something's wrong. Either they're hungry or there's a mess to be cleaned up or they're uncomfortable, and so we come running, and kids get really comfortable in that. It's nice to cry and people come running to make your life comfortable. But sooner or later, a child has to be trained out of that foolish and actually false thinking that they're the center of the universe. You know, much like centuries ago, the, the popular scientific theory and, and belief was that the earth was the center. And then a guy named Copernicus comes along and blows it all apart. And people were like, what? The sun? How could the sun be the center? And so through physics and telescopes and all kinds of uh, other proofs, we eventually went, ah, the sun is the center of the universe. And so discipleship, in part, is helping children to leave that false theory that they're the center of the universe and realize it's not even mom or dad at the center of the universe or the people that live around me in my family or community. It's God Almighty. He's the center of the universe. Now that very proverb goes on to say, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And then uh, as we were reading a little bit in Proverbs 3, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which so many of us have known from childhood, trust in the Lord with all your heart, don't lean on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and, and he will direct your paths. That is a good word, but that same passage continues into verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So we got our work cut out for us, but God has given us tools. Now here's big point number two. And go to Hebrews 12 right now, and then I'll go to point number two. Hebrews 12, in verse five, the author of Hebrews is trying to put some things like our present suffering and difficulty in its larger context, much like Paul was doing in Romans 8. And then he goes back to Proverbs 3, and grabs two of the verses. In Hebrews 12, verse five, he says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And now he quotes it straight up. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. But let's read on. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now this is where I want to give you some perspective and great hope. Parents, Christian parents, have you thought of uh, of rearing your child and even the particular strategies of discipline that we use from instructing them in God's truth to correcting unrighteous behavior. Have you thought of that lately as gospel work? Because it is. And gospel work isn't a secondary consideration. It's the primary work of Christian parenting. You say, why would you say that? I'm saying it in part because passages like Hebrews 5, I think, unfold that for us. Now, did you notice a couple of things? Go back to verses 7 and 8. What did God say of this, uh, of this kind of discipline? It's actually a sign of sonship. And then he said in, in verse 9, it results in respect. And then he even notes, and this is a little passing comment, I think this is helpful for us, verse 10, according to what seems best to the earthly dad or mom. Don't want to exclude moms in this as well. What's going on here? Well, there, there's a, a discipline of God that actually is reflected in parental discipline on earth. And Christian parents, our discipline needs to be a reflection of God's discipline in some of those very areas. You know, if you really do love your child, you will discipline them. That means both positively instructing them in the truth and ways of God and correcting behavior that God says is sinful, unrighteous, unloving. To just abandon your child, whether it be because you're a little uncomfortable or even embarrassed by the way your child is acting, and we've all been there, haven't we? But just to take your hands off the steering wheel of that child's heart, I mean, that, that is one of the most unloving things you can do. You should discipline in the hope that it will result in respect. There are some parents who are more concerned about being their, their child's friend than being the parent. Friendship will come. I can testify to that. I mean, this is, every season of parenting has its blessings and its challenges. I love the season of parenting we're in right now. And I'm not even going to say I love it better than the previous seasons of parenting. But part of the reason, and, and it's harder in some ways, but it's also really neat. Like yesterday, one of my daughters uh, had said earlier in the week, hey, could my boyfriend and I just get with you and mom for breakfast? I, I thought there was going to be a deal, like something's going down. <laughs> no, they just wanted time with us. And we ended up talking about some ordinary life things, and we also talked about some really neat spiritual things, like stuff that God's doing in their heart, questions that they have, and how do we handle this, and we're just sharing, you know, and it was, it was much more like friends and peers, brothers and sisters in Christ than mom and dad and kid. Now, there's, they'll always be our children, and I'm happy to remind them as I need to. So you parents who have young ones, that'll come in time, but don't set out now to just, oh, I just want to be their friend. No, you need to be the kind of parent God is because they're not mature enough to be your friend and your buddy at this point. God's calling you to nurture that soul in him. And discipline is gospel work, and it needs to reflect God's 
discipline. Um, so it's a reflection of God's discipline. It's also a means to God's purpose. Now look at verse 10. Notice that God disciplines for our good. And it's actually the eternal good of his children. And, and can I interject this? God doesn't say anything about disciplining us because we just really ticked him off or we inconvenienced him you know, in his daily schedule. Now, it's very easy to discipline your children when they inconvenience you and they wreck and ruin some really good things. But Christian parent, you cannot discipline out of that kind of anger and frustration. For the moment, or I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Number, number two, um, so eternal good, shared holiness. Do you see that? The last half of verse 10, God disciplines us uh, with a view um, that we may share his holiness. A wise parent doesn't let his child throw fits and tantrums at the table or participate with poor manners. Uh, there's a gospel issue at stake. It doesn't mean you, you sit there and preach a half-hour sermon when it unfolds or you know, suddenly you know, shift into evangelist mode. But being a part of a family means that we, re, we love and respect those who are there. And again, I don't, there's no verse in the Bible that says eating with your mouth open is sin. But if you're seated across the table from somebody who does that, it, it's very unpleasant. We all know what's happening to the food that's in your mouth. We just don't want to see it. We'd rather enjoy the conversation and not be distracted by the initial stages of digestion because that's what chewing is, right? So we teach our kids, chew with your mouth closed, don't smack, don't burp, don't, I mean, there's a whole list of things we don't do at the table because we're a family unit and we, we are there actually to experience the, the kind of love and consideration and encouraging conversation, all kinds of great things that, that happen at the table. And you know, God himself wants to share his very nature with his family and part of that is sharing in his holiness. And if you and I are not brought to that place of holiness through the powerful work of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross and, and the power of his resurrection as we too are raised in newness of life, we would not like heaven. Heaven will be a terrifying place for unholy people. And furthermore, the God who is at the center of the universe and that holy heaven is holy himself, you would not want to be in his presence unless you personally were transformed. And so that's why God, as a loving father, disciplines us. So he's, he, he's removing and stripping away all of that unholy stuff, conforming us, as Romans 8 said, to the image of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. It's with a view that we can share the glory of heaven. And then look at the third thing, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It really does produce something. Sometimes you have to wait a long time for a harvest, don't you? I told you a few weeks ago we had peachoids. Now we got peaches. Now they're still fairly small, but we've been uh, picking them off the tree this week and I've been slicing some off and just eating them like they barely get in the house. Oh, they're so good. So good. But we had to wait. And I told you even, I think it was last year that, you know, this tree is so young. We had three peaches on it and one of those, you know, died an untimely death. And so I think we only had two that we could eat last year. Well, there's fruit that's enjoyable. Man, we've had to wait almost three years since we planted that thing. And, you know, parenting takes endurance. 
Some of you are like, yeah, I know God said that, but there is no peaceful fruit, and I don't see much righteousness in my child yet. I know. But you are actually part of God's means of leading them to salvation. God's not sitting back with arms full to go, going, okay, Christian parent, are you going to do this or not? No, he, he has actually called you into this holy mission to actually just serve him. He's the one ultimately that's going to rescue your child and convict their hearts of sin and bring them to the place of repentance and faith. And some of you saw that sooner than you thought, and others of you are still waiting. But Christian parent, God doesn't have a different way of rescuing your child than by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says that it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That is the discipline of God. So do your purposes in parenting and discipline reflect God's eternal purpose? It's a gospel work. Grandparents, can I encourage you? Are you actually in partnership with your adult Christian children? And I know this doesn't apply to everybody that's here, but for those who who, to whom it does, let me just talk to you for a moment. Or are you so intent on spoiling your grandchild that you're actually undoing some of the important disciplinary work that's going on, whether it be on the side of formal instruction or even the correction? Before we moved to Utah, we live next door to my in-laws, and um, I'm thankful for grandparents who were partners with us uh, from Seth's perspective, that wasn't always a good thing. And he would even say sometimes, I have four moms. Because there's Kristen, and there's his two older sisters, Kate and Haley, and there's Grandma Johnson, who didn't let him get away with anything. Right? But from a parent's perspective, that gave us great peace of mind to know that she wasn't going to undo stuff that we were trying to do, you know, while we left him with her for an hour or a day or a week. Grandparents, you have an awesome opportunity to partner with God and with your adult children who are seeking to disciple these little ones. Don't get in the way of discipline. Now, it's one thing if, they're, if they are overcorrecting or using too much force in that discipline or a sinful attitude or sinful anger emerges, pull them aside and correct them, but don't get in the middle of it and undo that stuff. They're trying, and they'll figure it out. And, you know, we were harder on our first child than our fourth, and probably the middle two got the sweet spot. That's part of how God changes your adult children. Partner with them. Now, finally, and time is hastening on discipline, is grace work. Go to verse 11 and notice a couple things about God's discipline. First of all, it's limited in duration. It's not extended indefinitely. He, he uses that little phrase, for the moment. That is for a short time. Nobody wants to live under a perpetual cloud of, man, I really got it you know, last night, but I, I think we're still in trouble in this house. It, number two, it's designed to bring painful sorrow, but not eternal punishment. That's actually what God is trying to rescue us from. If you don't reach a point where you humble yourself and repent of your sins and call upon him for mercy and grace, you will actually suffer punishment that never ends. And so God in his wisdom applies a limited amount of painful sorrow. So as, as the writer here says, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And that term painful refers to painful sorrow. 
And he, and he doesn't specify what, what it is necessarily, and I actually think that's, th- this gives Christian parents room within their conscience as guided by the Holy Spirit and their understanding of Scripture to decide what the appropriate painful sorrow for this child should be at this moment. Because even in this discipline, beloved, God is not actually making us pay for our sins. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He's correcting foolish, sinful thinking and behavior, and there is a huge difference. It's one of the frustrations I have. There's so much misunderstanding even about the appropriate application of spanking. It can be done in a way that is God-honoring and truly uh, loving in, in the biblical sense of correcting and guiding and training a child. It, it should never, it should never fall under the heading of abuse where out of sinful anger or uh, uncontrolled physical force bring uh, damage and bruising and battering to a child. That's not what God is calling for even when he speaks of the rod. But he does bring painful sorrow short term so that we will experience his ultimate saving grace. I don't have time right now uh, to, to really address consequences and the rod. Those are two of the bigger categories that if you study scripture, you will find that God in his love will often let his children experience the consequences of their sinful choices, even though he has forgiven them. And those consequences can be powerful lessons in wisdom. Real quick illustration. If your child cannot remember to take his lunch to school every day and continually leaves it on the counter, if you show up around 11 o'clock every day with a happy meal because he's not learning that responsibility, you have short-circuited a really prime opportunity for discipleship. Now, I'm not saying that child will never get saved and repent of his sins, but I'm just saying there's an example of how you're not willing to let the child experience the consequences of what is a foolish or immature choice. Don't be too hasty to get in the way of consequences. And the rod, we looked at a passage earlier, um, and there are multiple others in Proverbs that speak of a, a right kind of application of a rod of discipline. The Bible is not condoning beatings like some are trying to say it does. Uh, the rod is a means of, of correction. Uh, and I do, as I said a moment ago, parents need to prayerfully and creatively and lovingly figure that out. Uh, that we'll, just, we'll just have to save that for uh, maybe some of those equipped classes in, that are a month or so out. Finally, and I want to encourage you with this, God's discipline is a great grace work because it is intended to, I, I could even say, reshape our hearts, not simply our behavior. God is interested in far more than behavior modification or behavioral compliance. He's interested in transforming the heart. And that's why the writer of Hebrews uses this phrase, trained by it. That is, when you have been shaped or conditioned by these disciplinary measures, in much the way an athlete disciplines herself, and we've seen some Olympic athletes in recent days set world records or secure uh, medals and, and distinguish themselves, and it came through years of disciplined effort. And they were careful about training schedules and diet, and, and they gave up, sacrificed a lot of conveniences and even luxuries of life because that was the thing they set their heart on. How much more, how much more important is it for us to find that right relationship with God that we might be rescued for all eternity? And what a grand privilege it is as parents in particular 
to be entrusted with these precious souls created in the image of God, you'll have no greater opportunity for evangelism and discipleship than with your own kids. Don't forfeit it. Don't neglect it. uh, Don't minimize it. God put those children or that child under your care so that you, in service to him, in partnership with his grand eternal plan, could be the one who walks the most steps of life side by side, heart to heart, shoulder to shoulder, the good and the bad, and always saying, there's Jesus. You need Jesus. That's a bad heart attitude. It's going to hurt if you continue living that way, but your hope is Jesus. Dad's not your hope, mom's not your hope, the family heritage is not your hope, the church is not your hope. Jesus is your hope. Oh, there's so much more, as always, isn't there? A few quick, helpful resources, uh, quickly from left to right, Equipping for Life. And I'm gonna tell you, I haven't read this book, but I've read enough of Andreas Kostenberger, and his wife has partnered with him in this. I know you can't read the subtitle, uh, A Guide for New aspiring and struggling parents. And, and Kostenberger is a skilled uh, theologian, and I've, I've read extensively and studied another book that he wrote a number of years ago on marriage and the family and how all that integrates into the church was exceedingly blessed. So I'm confident in his work, and I'm always happy when a scholar's uh, wife comes in because she will wisely give additional perspective. Many of you are familiar with Shepherding a Child's Heart, I alluded earlier to instructing a child's heart, and I've been blessed as I've pulled that out. And then for those of you who have teenage parents, Age of Opportunity by Paul Tripp is a good one. Here is a website that you should be familiar with, Westminster Bookstore. And I I haven't obviously read all the resources they have there, but, but this is a group that I'm confident in. I know their theological framework. I know many of these authors, uh, and the ones that I don't know personally, uh, I suspect would, would be helpful. And like many of us, we go to specific websites and then see if Amazon has it cheaper, but often they don't. Often uh, Westminster Bookstore, their online store, will have some of the, the best prices. And that's, that's just the top part of a page. Uh, and you can't, I took a screenshot, you can't see it. Uh, the search I just did was parenting. And it was like, you know, I don't know, 40, 50 resources popped up there. Everything from those of you who are expecting to be parents for the first time or in those early years to parents of teens or even parents of adult children. A couple of resources that I've seen here that I think are intriguing, how you pray for your kids at various stages of life. And um, we can talk more about that later. Let's pray together. Father, we have... Uh, bitten off far more than we could chew today, and yet I ask that your spirit would take uh, the words, uh, the holy words of scripture, first of all, and seal them to our hearts, and then, Spirit of God, would you be so kind and gracious as to show us specifically what our next step should be, whether parents or those waiting to be parents, or even grandparents. Um, I know that there are Uh, singles here who don't have this responsibility and and even according to your plan will not but together as a family as a church family we have a a grand privilege of discipling these young ones and pointing them to Jesus so give us the grace to do that and I ask great God and King that you would be a heavenly father to us um, in every true aspect of that because we need that And we thank you uh, that you are the perfect Father. 
So give us grace on this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.